From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Matthew Monagle, co-creator and editor of the site Certified Forgotten. You've also seen and read his work in places such as The Playlist, Film School Rejects, and The Austin Chronicle. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. What a that was a great bio. Like I was like, yeah, that sounds really official. I like those publications. Good pulls. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. You know, we do our we do our research here. I swear I'm better at writing people's bios that come on the show than my own fucking bio. Like I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know who I am. Like, what do you need to know? So it's always really great when you when you're doing, as you guys know, because you have a podcast, where you're doing a podcast and you have to remind the guest of the things that they have going on. They're like, oh, did you want to, re- did you want to bumper this like show that you're doing or this guest appearance they had? And they're like, oh shit, yeah, I need to do that. And you're like, all right, great. <laughs> That's always yeah, the best when we, get, like, to, to, yeah, when we get to the end and it's like, do you have anything you want to plug? And they're like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
That's always great. I guess um, I should mention that I did like a DVD recording. I don't know, guys. <laughs> uh, okay, so getting to know you better, how did you get into horror? Or how were you introduced to it? Yeah. Um, you know, I it, it's weird because one of the premises of Certified Forgotten on our podcast is we kind of talk to our guests about the same thing. So I've asked this question a million times. And I feel like I don't really have a great, like super cohesive version of my own story because there were, you know, there was a few years there in, as a child where my family actually didn't have a TV. Um, I, and I can't specifically remember the ages when, but my parents were one of those, you know, granola type groups that I guess they were like, TV is going to be really bad for our kids. So we don't mm-hmm. want to have a TV in the household. And there were like a few times where we went to the local video store and actually rented a TV VCR combo for like special occasions. And that was a really big deal. But my earliest memories in terms of watching movies was going to my, my grandmother's house. Um, they had like a downstairs kind of like ruckus room thing with a TV set up. And so the parents would be upstairs talking about whatever it is adults talk about. And I would be downstairs like mm-hmm. watching movies pulling things like, um, gosh, what were some of the ones that, that were, uh, the fugitive was on rotation heavily whenever we watched it, just like all that kind of like fun made me feel like an adult kind of watches and horror came a little bit later because I was partially because I was a kid with an overactive imagination, partially because I was a a delicate, a really just like a delicate flower. I, as, as my wife hates when I talk about this, but it's an important thing to understand in the context of me. I was homeschooled for a few years. So, you know, like a kid with a little bit of like a, a social awkwardness, but didn't have a lot of exposure to, I guess, the kind of stuff that you, you get a lot of things by peer pressure when you're young, scary material, books and TV shows and movies and stuff. And I didn't really have that. So I kind of got to middle school and started ingesting horror content and scared the hell out of me. I was like, I couldn't deal with it. A few years later, I kind of came back to it because a friend had recommended Evil Dead and I saw Evil Dead um, in high school. And that for some reason, for as much as I have a reputation of being a guy that doesn't like horror comedies, it was like that early, the Sam Raimi films, Peter Jackson films, it was horror comedies that kind of made me realize that I could stomach horror as a high schooler. And then it became this process by which like I just had to, I had to consume as many of them as I could. I had to like gross out all of my friends it became kind of this like assholery thing of like oh i'm gonna show people reanimator that i just met to see if they can hack it oh god i was the same way when i was in middle when i was in high school i was like like, you're coming to a mary beth mcandrews movie night we're gonna watch something fucked up (laughs) and you know in hindsight not a great way to make friends and really <laughs> demonstrate like you care about them beyond whether or not they're scared by this film. But yep. you know, that, that be kind of, that kind of became it is like, I, I think I just, I crossed the Rubicon and then suddenly I was just super interested in horror and I found stuff that really worked for me. And as I've gotten older, I found that there are particular niches of horror that are just like so impactful and powerful for me. But it's, you know, when you boil all of that down to like, you know, the one sentence elevator pitch, it's basically things scared you, then you got obsessed with it. Um, it's something, you know, we've talked about, you guys have talked about with your guests, everybody's talked about. It. It's just the thing that scares you bad, you either avoid it forever or you become morbidly obsessed with it. And I think the yep. one thing a lot of horror fans have in common is we become obsessed with it. I mean, that just distilled everything to a perfectly executable soundbite. I mean, we could just play that every time someone comes on because it's true i guess our podcast we... is over we've gotten to the, <laughs> the core of it got to the nice core of it. i know it's... you guys were supposed to do an episode with donato coming up so oh, sorry fuck him. i ended the podcast <laughs> before you got a chance to be sorry, on Donato. we solved it 
<laughs> no, but it's it's true. I, I it's I was thinking as you were talking back to I mean my my kind of introduction to like what adult horror is with Jaws and Alien and Nightmare on Elm Street and those like terrified me and I wanted to stay away from them, but then I kept coming back to it and then I mean I'm here, so obviously pursued mm-hmm. it. But like that that is I think that is the essence of what makes horror fans horror fans. Yeah, I agree. And it certainly it's certainly a good way for you to sort of test boundaries, especially. And it's mm. it's it's really it's sort of a safe way for you to test boundaries, right? Like being a weird A V kid and being into like, you know, pushing boundaries with horror films, you know, I developed a sort of a, a an identity for myself. I developed a set of interests that eventually served me well in life, you know, that would lead to me being interested in film and film criticism and all of these things. But there's a lot of, you know, when you're sm- a kid in a small town there's a lot of shit you can get up to when you're a junior in high school and it's better that i became obsessed with evil dead and reanimator and things like that than the other options that were available to me yeah yeah very true so was evil dead your first horror movie or do you did you have no no i hear you um evil dead was not my first horror film evil dead was the first horror film that i fell in love with Okay. okay um you know the Honestly, the first true horror film that I remember watching is the subject of today's show. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Oh, okay. But so I will say this about my relationship to horror after this is what I found out years later after my parents had kind of gone through this process of, okay, we're actually going to get a TV because turns out the television is not going to screw up our kids (laughs) at all. And like they're going to come out fine on the other end. Once that kind of like that alleviated that pressure was off, I found out that my my mother in particular was hiding like this tremendous horror fan in her. She had been somebody that grew up in the Bay Area and, you know, like the 60s and 70s and was watching just a slew of like drive in double features. She cut her teeth as a kid on a bunch of these like, you know, monster feature creatures um, from around that time period. And so when when horror and horror films and you know we were watching movies as a family kind of came back on the table weirdly it was my mother and i out of my family and even within kind of my broader circle of friends that really bonded over stuff you know she would leave like the most gross and weird blockbuster vhs tapes on the counter because of stuff that she had seen and really liked and even up to a few years ago you know i could count on my mother during like halloween to watch just like the worst direct-to-video things and kind of give me a, a precursor of like terrible terrible stuff she'd watch she had a reputation as being somebody that would watch any kind of horror so it was this weird kind of thing where like after after we came out on the other side of it and after i realized this was something for me then i was able to sort of trace back part of my obsession i think is because because it was handed down a little bit because these were the types yeah. of movies and not you know rubber suits and creature features of the period but at least like the kind of b horror was something that my mother had had an interest in for a long time. And she was able to kind of share that with me. So it became kind of like a family connection thing that persists to this day. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't give her full credit. She was one of the people that (laughs) took the TV out of the house. and was like no (laughs) movies forever. And it was only after the fact that she was like, okay, horror movies are good. So like give her some credit for one side of it, you know, but take some of the credit away for keeping us as a TV free household. I missed years of important development. I I mean, it's true. The pop that culture, the pop, the holes in your pop culture knowledge now. Oh yeah. Of that. Oh, a hundred percent. Okay, so as as an adult now, what what draws you to the genre? Uh, a couple of things. One, I, I have a reputation which is very well earned of being somebody who likes just slogging grief explorations in horror. You know, my favorite kind of movies, uh, my favorite kind of movies within the horror genre 
are stuff like Hagazusa, stuff like Black Coat's Daughter, like real slow moving meditations on grief and guilt and trauma and how those kind of every horror film these days is about trauma. So that's not exactly a particularly insightful comment. But, you know, I, I like I think I like and I have been drawn to horror films that that sort of play with that human um that human feature. I, I've never been somebody who got as excited for monsters or creatures. I've never within the horror genre, I've never been a creatures guy or like a monsters guy too much. I don't have, you know, I have no real affinity or loyalty, which makes me sound like a bore, bad horror fan, but no real affinity or loyalty to Freddy Krueger or Mike Myers or Jason or any kind of those characters. But I am really drawn to stories about like people whose, whose lives are just slowly dissolving because I think that that is the type of horror that, you know, I have not experienced firsthand, but I recognize shades of that in periods of my life where I've been sad or periods of my life where I've been anxious. And that kind of horror has always felt super cathartic to me to like watch something like Hagazusa, which is just the, the just the bleakest movie huh. ever. Really and then is. like come out on the other end of that and be like, ah, I made it. it's like plunging, <laughs> you know, like being held underwater and not being able to breathe and finally getting your head back above the surface. That's that doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't sound like, like I, if I describe my taste like that to somebody, I'm not, they're not going to take any of my recommendations, but that is like, the kind boy. of thing that I like. Yeah. Like, you know how like you're almost drowning and then you're like, Oh, I'm going to die. And then you don't. Yeah. I like doing that. I love that. Movies. that. First gas of air. Yeah, exactly. Like you're like, Oh, I'm not going to die. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, you know, the feeling I try and evoke in my horror watching. My favorite. Love my, it. Uh, I want a movie that makes me feel like I'm going to have a panic attack as soon as I walk out of movie theater when I realize I'm yes. not in the movie. And then I'm just like, oh, I'm in reality. And it's like cold water to your face. It's great. Yes. And I do have there. Don't get me wrong. There's parts of me that are really drawn towards like big swing kind of stuff. Like I'm famously a huge fan of The Empty Man. I was going to bring <laughs> up The Empty Man because <laughs> we had to talk about that man. movie. It's there. Yeah. There are movies where like high concept horror, like basically high concept horror or like tone poems are the two types of horror that I'm drawn to the most. And it makes, it makes for a weird watch list, but God, <laughs> but God, I love it. It's just the best. And I, I'm people know that I'm not a huge fan of horror comedies just because they can never for me maintain their momentum. Um, and slashers or something I hit and miss with. There's a lot of other types of the genre that don't work, but yeah, basically if I can like, if when I went back and maybe this is just a 2020 thing, when I went back and looked at my Spotify playlist, like most listened to songs in 2020, the Hakazusa soundtrack was like hours ahead of everything else. And I was like, well, if that's not if that's not like a microchasm for the year we were all having in 2020, I, I don't say, know what is. You were not okay <laughs> just listening to the droning Hakazusa soundtrack. I'm a like- super cheerful guy. I just that's not that's not the energy I like to tap into when I'm relaxing. I get it. You know what? I get that though. I listen to the Hereditary soundtrack to relax sometimes, and that is not calm whatsoever. No, so I get not it. even a little. <laughs> not even a little bit. The things we listen to to relax. Well, it's like it's the the thing that they say, right? Is like the in, the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is not where you function or where you're you're good at. It's where you draw your energy. Mm-hmm. So the idea is like an introvert can totally be social, as social as anybody else. But in order to recharge those batteries, they need to go to a space where there's solitude, they're by themselves. And I think that there's just a part of that too, for me, that's always been horror and music is like, I, I recharge creatively when I watch stuff that other people would be like, I don't want any part of that. So like, yeah, the Hagazusa soundtrack is, which I own on vinyl, by the way, is not something that you, you know, a lot of people are going to take energy from, but there's just something about a movie like that and a soundtrack like that, that, that recharges my batteries. 
Yeah. So, do you still get scared watching horror movies? No. Okay. No, I haven't. In, I haven't in a long time. A good jump scare can still get me because that's like a pure yeah. fight or flight response, right? There's, you know, yeah. you can't, you can't really prep yourself for uh, a good jump scare. But I think, I think you, Mary Beth, probably put it best. Like the mo- the most I can get emotionally, what I want to get out of a horror film is like the feeling that you walk out and you're like, oh god, I'm gonna have an anxiety attack. Like I don't get scared, but I get like I I get tense like everything Mm. physically kind of closes up a little bit Mm -hmm. and that to me is a a cathartic experience but yeah i it's you know there are there are ways that you can probably juice that a little bit by like watching a specific type of movie in a specific location and then doing like a specific thing afterwards like watching a you know haunted house movie in like an abandoned house that you have to like overnight like yeah i'm sure i would spend the rest of the night jumping but, why would you but just do like that? when i'm <laughs> but why would you do that exactly like that's too much i would, I would. But it's hard insane. it's hard to it's hard to sit down and watch anything and feel scared afterwards anymore what which was, is sort of a shame but it's occupational hazard yeah yeah i have this but the thing is like 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 i was saying like if i have that if i have a strong emotional reaction even if it's not fear with a horror movie, like I find that very successful. Like you can get me like feeling mm-hmm. very strongly, but Matt, you said that, you know, you like movies that make you feel like you're going to have a panic attack. What was the last movie you saw that made you feel that way? Oh, that's a good question. And I feel like I have to stall for time <laughs> as I open up my letterboxed, which I'm definitely not doing, but if me, I were... Me, all the time in podcasts, is if I've never seen a fucking movie in my uh-huh. entire life. And like, what are like, movies? And like, they're like, oh, so what was the last movie you watched? I'm like, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> like, I don't know. I've never watched a movie, ever. Yeah, I... Um, gosh, I, I don't really have a good answer for that. I think that there's... Uh, well, okay, here we go. This is one, I guess, that... that um, I, so I watched The Hive, 2015's Hive, which was like a Nerdist production. It is a, it is the antithesis of what I really like in a film, usually. It's like a, a virus, camp counselors, people like killing each other, getting taken over by an alien entity and killing each other. Um, but that that had kind of like just the right combination of, you know, what you think of as traditional movie scares and um, more mood-based stuff that it really, really worked for me. And as I've been I am, meaning to watch that movie. Yeah. As I'm not scrolling through my letterbox mm-hmm. as we record this podcast, I would say probably the best example of that recently that comes to mind is St. Maud. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which I felt like I didn't even need to I just needed to say the title and let you react to it and that's that's all that the audience needs to know. Yeah. And if they've seen St. Maud, they know, and if they haven't, that reaction should you hopefully know, you know. encourage mm-hmm. you to watch St. Maud cuz it's fucking amazing. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, like St. Maud is exactly the kind of energy, you know, the the like um we'll say like the the second tier A24 stuff tends to resonate really well for me. And by second tier, I mean whether or not it belongs in that tier, the Black Coat's Daughter, Hole in the Ground, St. Maud, stuff that doesn't have the cachet of your midsomers or right. you know, things like that. Um that tends to be a little bit like a little bit more tinged with genre but still really tone and tonal and creepy and unsettling. That tends to work really well for me. Oh my god, I need to rewatch a hole in the ground. It's fantastic. I really like that, that movie. movie. I loved it when I saw it. I haven't seen it in so long. That was really good. We kick around the word underrated too much as an industry, but that movie is severely underrated. And underseen. It mm-hmm. is underseen. Severely underseen. 
Um, okay, so talk about industry. How did you get into writing, and then how did you transition that into writing for these fantastic uh, organizations and outlets? So, um, like everybody else, generally in our my age group, um, you know, I dabbled with writing around college, and I had a blog, and I wrote a couple of reviews and stuff out, out of college, and they were fine. They were okay. Um, the person that really opened that door for me, and I will always, always give credit to her, is Christine Makepeace, um, who's a friend and a fantastic editor. She's the former editor-in-chief of Paris Cinema Magazine. Um, Paris Cinema was, you know, think Rue Morgan, Fangoria, Paris Cinema was kind of of those like high design, high quality mm-hmm. or editorial work. Sadly, no longer with us, but I consider the beginning of my writing career to be when I responded to a random Craigslist ad because I was just like looking for opportunities to write when I was still living in Alaska and like looking at Craigslist stuff um, and seeing, you know, media writing opportunities. They had put out a call for pitches and I wrote a piece, actually I'd written a college paper on diegetic and non-diegetic music in session nine. So I wrote a whole piece about that. They took it and edited it up and published it a little bit, which was really great. And I started writing for them. And when they started to publish on the website as opposed to just the magazine, I started to do some writing for them. It's all still online. A lot of it's rough, like like anybody's early writing. I don't really love to go back and kind of look at it. But there is some stuff there that I'm super proud of, especially when I was covering festivals and um, looking into like genre horror in particular. But from there, I just kept writing. Like I've always been pretty, like I love, horror is my main reason for loving film criticism and being in the industry. But a lot of what I do is basically just opportunities for me to write about the types of films that I want to write about. So like I'll write about individual titles or I'm very, very loyal to editors. So like there's editors that I love to work with and they, you know, they could give me any film and be like, hey, can you write something on this? And I'll do it because I like the site and I like the way that they work with their staff. And there really isn't any kind of like, more magic combination than that. You know, I, I wrote for a couple of sites. I built a few relationships that gave me the opportunity to write for a few more sites, which built a, a few new relationships. And as somebody who works full time outside of the industry, I kind of have reached a point in my career, I think, where I, I write for sites that I like. I write for editors that I like. I'm not trying to really elevate my profile as a writer because that takes a lot of time and energy. I just don't, don't have. Um, but I'm really comfortable and really, really happy with kind of my portfolio of writing and the sites that I write for regularly. So it's, I I think of it as sort of like, you know, if you told me when I was 20 years old and being like, I want to write about film for a living, I might view this as disappointment, but honestly, like this is the the most satisfied I've ever been as a writer is kind of what I have going on right now. So it's hard for me to feel too much like, you know, we need to, the, the definition for success as a writer is anything other than find, you know, get paid, write about movies you like for sites you like. And if you can kind of figure that out in whatever capacity you can, you have to be considered successful. And I consider myself successful in that. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Uh, Makes so, me feel better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to like, I really, I, it, I, I take great pride in the fact that I'm able to juggle two pretty different, like my day job is that I work as a director of brand and communications at a credit union. And my evening stuff is all film criticism related. And like I, I, I walk those two lines and I'm able to have a pretty, a pretty well, I think a pretty well-rounded life and still be super obsessed with things like tabletop and RPGs. Um, so I feel like I have, I feel like I have it all. So it's whenever I encounter people that are just starting out or kind of like reaching inflection points in their career, I always try and really hit the point home that like, 
we have these notions of success in film criticism that are like, if I'm not on staff at Vulture or mm -hmm. Vanity Fair, then I'm not successful. Mm -hmm. But some of the, my favorite writers are people that are doing this part time. Some of my favorite writers are people that are doing this like super duper infrequently. I think right. it's important to remember that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to adhere to anybody's concept of success other than your own. Just make sure you get paid. You hear that everybody. Absolutely. Just make sure you get paid. Please. Yeah, that's an important piece. You <laughs> never want that to be left out. Piece. Getting paid. Um, but so can you tell our listeners a little bit about Certified Forgotten, what it is, the podcast and the website? I would be very happy to. Thank you. So Certified Forgotten started as a project between myself and uh, I'll, I'll call him my friend, but don't tell him I said that, uh, Matt Donato, <laughs> we'll who, who is an extremely talented and ridiculously pro prolific horror film critic. Uh, check out his stuff if, if you haven't heard his name before. He's great. I'll, I'll, I was going to make a joke about how we don't like each other, but I actually think the world of him, so I'm not going to do that. Um, that said, we were both kind of kicking stuff around, at, you know, and I think the, the podcast sort of originated in 2019, and the idea was we there were all of these horror films that we were seeing at genre festivals, um, stuff like Fantastic Fest, even stuff like South by Southwest or like New York Horror Film Festival, we really, like, the instigator for this is that we had seen a film at the New York City Horror Film Festival, um, which I don't even know if they run anymore. I assume they still do. But what, this was very low rent, uh, very DIY film festival out of New York for many, many years that bounced around between venues for a very long time. But they had a couple of films that Donato and I were both living in New York at the same time, and we'd seen those films and loved them. And these are movies like uh, Found, which is a great, like, coming-of-age um, serial killer film. You should definitely check it out if that sounds like your thing. But we realized that like a lot of these movies that we'd seen at festivals and loved had sort of disappeared. So oh, the idea yeah. for the podcast was let's start like, you know, let's give ourselves a really tough arbitrary limit. Let's see if we can run a podcast that only talks about films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Part of that was talking about movies that just didn't have the critical reception. Part of that too is an understanding of the industry and how Rotten Tomatoes has sort of shaped consensus about movies, even though it's a relatively recent phenomenon and it's, let's say, it can be um, disproportionate in its accreditation for, for critics and writers and publications. And then once that was sort of at a place where we were happy with it, we realized that we wanted to extend that a step farther and create a publication, create a website where people could write about the types of movies that most sites wouldn't pay them to write about. You know, we both were huge fans of The Dissolve, RIP. And the thing about The Dissolve that was so incredible is just the idea that like they were letting writers go long on movies regardless of whether or not you know, it was a quote unquote, like good movie to write about, whether that was a strong SEO decision or whether that was, you know, had any kind of popular buzz or consensus around it. People had just had the opportunity to write about the films they were passionate about. And so we've been operating the site for a little more than a year now. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to have some pretty great writers, uh, someone who hosts this podcast included, appear on the site. And our, our MO is just that. Like, we, if you pitch us something, we've actually rejected pitches because the movies are too popular. We've had people be like, <laughs> I want to write about Wes Craven. And we're like, no, like Wes Craven is great. Like, don't get me wrong. The world needs more Wes Craven scholarship, but we need, we need somebody to write about like a 2003 direct to video release that 12 people saw. And we will pay you to write about that movie instead because nobody else is going to do that. Like who not to toot our own horn, but like there's not a lot of sites that will pay for like the weirder, smaller stuff that nobody's talking about. So in our best days, I think that Donato and I have always aspired to be the dissolve of genre films, which is just, is there a movie that you're passionate about? Go long on it and we will pay you to go long on it because we want 
there to be writing on the internet for that film because someday somebody's going to go looking and they're going to need somebody who, who can write about it intelligently and talk about it and be enthusiastic. And it's it's been kind of a wild ride. It's been kind of fun. The quality of the writing you get, you know, there are just apparently there's a whole bunch of film critics out there who are really hungry to write about their favorite films that nobody else will accept pitches on. Who yep. would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? thought indeed? I got to write about two found footage horror movies that no one else has probably ever thought to write about. And it was really mm-hmm. fucking cool. And now people, Mary a lot Beth? more people have seen them. Shut up, Terry. Writing about found footage? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I would like to say that the uh, the director of Webcast himself was very complimentary of uh, some of the, the scholarship that MB provided. So it's, you know, it's, I've, I've never been, I've never, I didn't get into this industry to, to like, I don't have, I don't have any secret scripts or anything. Like I have no creative aspirations as a film critic and therefore I don't have a lot of interest in you know oh like i can't believe the director so-and-so or writer so-and-so but i will have one caveat where when we hear from somebody whose movie is like gone effectively and we did an episode or published a piece on it and they're really excited that somebody shown a little bit of a spotlight on it that feels good because that's i just got into i got into film criticism to tell people about movies that i liked and so whenever I have an opportunity to do that without any question of journalistic content or integrity or anything like that, when I can publish somebody who says this movie fucking rules and that gets an opportunity to get back to the filmmaker and I get to share that with the writer, that's pretty cool. That part of oh, it is yeah. that 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 doesn't suck. No. no. It's just so nice. A good well, and then you see people like interact with them after you wrote something about it and it's just like, oh yay, like <laughs> People mm-hmm. are going to watch the movie now and they can appreciate it. And that person, like that director will see people really watching their film again. And that's really cool. That's just like, yes, it is. Cause there's so many talented filmmakers and it's so easy for things to kind of get to get buried. So it's nice to have them like realize, Hey, your work is still like, does still matter. And people are still watching it. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the thing with uh, the director and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but the director of webcast when he reached out, you know, he, he basically, had given up his thing was like if i don't drink starbucks for five years i can funnel all of that into a movie and be able to make that that's that's literally what he did is he calculated how much it would be to drop coffee out of his budget and then spent that like ten thousand dollars or whatever it was on a film and like that's you know that's a labor of love that's you that's the kind of thing that deserves extra attention that deserves somebody who's out there putting their thumb on the scale and saying like yes 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 marvel whatever but also like how about this found footage film Absolutely. Um, okay, so before we do transition to the movie, I want to put you on the spot and ask, what is your, give us give our listeners your favorite um, episode that you guys have done for Certified Forgotten? Ooh, good question. Um, funnily enough, I actually know Donato's, um, which is the last will and testament of Rosalind Lee that we had with Brad McCarg, uh, which the two of us kind of think about as a turning point in the show because we weren't really deep into that movie. Um, in a way, I, I think we, we had a period there where we were like, people aren't going to be able to, you know, people aren't going to know off the top of their head, a movie that has five or fewer reviews. So we'll provide options for them. And we did that for like the first five to 10 episodes. And then we realized that everybody has something like mm-hmm. every single person, like both of you have been on the show. Like each of you was like, I have a movie. And then it was like, okay, we don't need to do this anymore. And unsurprisingly around that time as Brad was one of the first times that we let a guest pick the movie the quality of the show went through the roof because suddenly people were talking about the things they were excited about rather than just something that we kind of picked for them and maybe they liked it and maybe they didn't and that's fine. Yep. 
Um, in terms of my favorite episodes, um, if I can't choose my esteemed hosts of today, then you I, cannot. I, I, no, you can't. I'll exclude the two of you. I know, I know that there, ours are your favorite, but for everyone else's <laughs> sake, just kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I do, I do feel like for me, the experience of finding a film that surprises the hell out of me and being able to talk that with the guest is is integral to that. And so I will give I will give credit to Molly Henry, who is um, a regular writer at Certified Forgotten as well. She's the one that brought me uh, brought us the Hive as her episode okay. again, which is this Nerdist uh, first Nerdist feature, Cabin in the Woods type premise, like lots of lots of like blacklight and early 2010s kind of stuff. Um, and it's so on paper everything that I don't care about from a horror film, and it was just so smart and icky in the right ways and like really character driven and it just like it there hasn't been a time on the show i think where a movie has caught me that much by surprise and so i think that remains one of my favorite episodes because of that is just like we were able to talk about a film that just like i was not ready for how much i enjoyed that movie that's awesome cool oh i'm really i want to watch that now yeah, me too. good it's, it's real just, damn good it's been on my list to watch since it came out and you said 2015 Something like that, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think so. And it's been on my list, and I've been meaning to watch it. Here we are six years later, so maybe maybe I'll throw that on this weekend. Also, the last one, look the at, Testament look at of me. Rosalind Lee, sounds really cool, too. It's very good. That one is very good, too. And that was a uh, that was not a film, I think, that came from a film festival, but I saw that at a specialty screening in New York. It was playing at some art house or another. I can't remember, but it's uh, it's 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 very slow it's very elegic or elegiac how are you pronounce that um know what you're getting into but i think everybody if that if the description sounds like something that you'd like and i think both of you would really like it it's worth the time awesome all right well matt we have talked about your horror career but what movie we're we talking <laughs> about today so today we're going to be talking about a little film i like to call because it's its title tremors <laughs> 2 colon aftershocks um, so, in Tremors 2, colon, Aftershocks, uh, Earl Bassett is now a washed-up ex-celebrity who is hired by a Mexican oil company to eradica- eradicate a graboid epidemic that's killing more people each day. However, the humans aren't the only ones with a new battle plan. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. I have to add, I have to know. I, I've been dying to know your horror story about this movie, Matt, since you brought this up if like I, we had you and i had initially talked about it like a couple months ago and it's been in the back of my mind since then so give us your horror story how old were you how did you see this movie spill your guts what about this terrified you <laughs> yes so dreamers 2 aftershocks is not a movie you probably expect to see on a podcast about the movies that scarred you for life it's probably about as far from that as you can get. And, you know, everybody's scared by different stuff when they're young. But there is nobody's going to watch it at, at, at an adult age and think that there's anything terrifying about it. That said, again, have to acknowledge the fact that I was homeschooled and it kind of changed my blah, blah, blah. Sorry, Andrea, and sorry, my mom, because she hates it when I tell that story. The <laughs> thing is that, like, I hadn't watched a lot of film or television. And both my two most traumatic viewing experiences actually happened at uh, my friend David's house. One of the friends that I had that was, you know, uh, I can't remember if he was also homeschooled or if we were just buddies, whatever. It doesn't matter. Point is, is that I would go over to his house and he would watch movies and we'd watch movies together sometimes. 
mostly it was pretty normal stuff, you know, like whatever we played Super Nintendo, um, you know, the Spider-Man game, Maximum Carnage or whatever. That was like a, oh, a big gosh. hit in our house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But one day he decided to put on Tremors 2 Aftershocks. And I'd never seen Tremors, of okay. course, up to that point. Uh, but we watched it. And it was, for my fragile little fifth grade mind, the scariest fucking thing <laughs> that I had ever seen in my entire goddamn life. To the point, to the point that I went home and I did not sleep that night. And I know that, oh. like, I know it's this thing where you're like, oh, you didn't sleep. Like, you know, yeah, you didn't. Like, literally did not sleep. <laughs> like, my my bedroom at that point was at the opposite end of the house from my parents the house that we were renting i was basically like living room and kitchen was between us and i was on the other end of the house and i was already as a kid i was already always terrified of the distance between us like if something bad happened my parents right. were too far away to help us so that, like that didn't help at all either but like i stayed up the entire night like hyperventilating and crying because i imagine in particular the scene where the um the rancher on the car, like they, they go around the vehicle that's been shredded and it's just like the pair of arms that's already, that's, that's left. Yep. Like that scene in particular stuck in my brain so hardcore that like that entire night was a watch. It was crying. It was like my parents oh. had to get up and come back multiple times, go like walk across the house to check on me. And it was, I was just, I was a mess in every way the little kid can be a mess. Um, for Tremors too, Aftershocks. That's that movie. That's the movie that broke me. Wow. I wondered if it was that scene because I was as I'm what I like to do is I watch the movie and I'm always trying to take notes about, okay, what what is the scene that gets and sometimes it's always these like little moments that you don't even really think of rewatching it as an adult. But like Mm -hmm. the moment that we got to that scene with the arms that you think belong to a man that's, you know, together just holding on and he turns around and it's sort of like the Jurassic Park moment where the arm falls on the shoulder and they're just hanging there. And it's kind of it's kind of gory for a, a PG-13 movie, I have to say. Just those image. It's heavy. And, you know, there's there's not a lot of, like... There's not a lot of gore in this movie, really. Like, it's a pretty... Especially once you get through, like, the first half of the film, it's more goofy than anything else in, like, a, a fun and exciting way. But, yeah, I mean, like, I had not... I had not watched a lot of spooky stuff. Like, I, X-Files was not allowed in my house because that was too hardcore for mm. where I was as a kid. You know, I... Uh, when I was probably in the second or third grade, uh, my cousin and I had, I had a, uh, my buddy doll. If you remember the, my buddy dolls, which mm-hmm. were sort of the instigator for the child's play my franchise. Buddy, yeah. My Terry gets buddy, it. You know, the theme song go, and everything. he's gonna go. Yeah. My buddy, my buddy and me. Yep. So, and then the kid sister one. Yeah. But we didn't have a kid sister. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, is that, yeah, like we had, we had psyched ourselves up so bad one night about the My Buddy doll that it went in the garage. Not We'd never seen Child's Play. We didn't even know. It's like, we didn't know. All we knew was the cover from like VHS right, tapes. Right. And it scared the crap out of us so bad that like that the My Buddy doll that night went in the garage and never came out. And like that was sort of the mindset that I that I brought to horror movies really until high school. It's like, you know, my I like a lot of kids. I had an overactive imagination. It was really easy for me to psych myself out with stuff that was happening. I was terrified of of being the last one awake in the house, which was like a conscious fear of mine for years and years huh. as a kid is like I would actually sneak out into the living room at night if like my parents had fallen like fallen asleep listening to music or reading or something and like turn music back on 
without waking them up in the hope that that would like prolong them being in the living room with the lights on. So like I was just a very impressionable young kid and like Tremors too is nothing. But for me and where I was with regards to the horror genre at that point, I was just like, that was, that was too much. And there was enough of those little gory moments, like a total Jurassic Park ripoff, like all that kind of stuff. But there was enough of that, that it, it, it got under my skin and, and cost me, cost me an evening. So, and it would be, that was, you know, I, I'm sure that I must've watched something, but if I, if you were to put a gun to my head and say, what was the sequence of that? I really think that like I watched Tremors 2 as a fifth grader. And then I watched Evil Dead is like a sophomore in high school and no horror movies between those two ones. Wow. <laughs> like, I really don't remember wow. anything between those two movies. Wow. What an interesting range. Right? Tremors 2 and Evil Dead. So, okay. I want to talk about the Jurassic Park ripoff about Tremors 2 because that's literally all I could think about for most of the movie, especially when they do the reveal that there are bipedal um Mm-hmm. Are they Shriekers? Is that the name now? Shriekers, yeah. Shriekers, yeah. okay. I was trying to look up the lore around Graboids, and I was very confused by the life cycle of these things. Oh, my God. Like... We... I, I, I want to get to the Jurassic Parkness, but can we talk about this life cycle? Because there is a chart on Wikipedia that has the life cycle in a in a circle of the Graboids, from a Graboid to a Shrieker, and then there's a little side circle about a Shrieker's own life cycle, because they could populate on their own and then it goes to ass blasters and then it goes mm-hmm. to eggs to dirt dragons and back to graboids like this cycle someone went out and created ass a whole blaster? life cycle for it oh yeah oh, that's yeah, they fly. that's like the third or fourth one there there is so god bless michael gross who has continued to get paid throughout his entire career for this franchise yes. but um there are gosh i don't even know off the top of my head because i really didn't seven right there's There's a bunch of them i believe six some of them and one of them takes place in the old west like one of them is an entire like flashback film yeah it's just it's it is a franchise that has as much of its own mythology as any of like the triple a titles that we think of which is why it continues to persist and continues to get crowdfunded entries to this day is like this franchise means a lot to a lot of people not enough to get that goddamn sci-fi show made apparently bacon but we don't need to talk about that Annoyed, annoyed about that. Um, so I'm sorry. No, to, it's to okay. Sideline the conversation. So the Jurassic Park. It, Jurassic like, Park arms. Very, very. Yeah, Jurassic Park arms. But that whole reveal, I think, when it was going from the sick graboid to the reveal that they are now shriekers, was very like so Jurassic Park. Like all I could think about with the graboid, the sick graboid was the triceratops like when laura dern or nor sam neil puts his head Mm -hmm. on the triceratops like all i could think about was that and then it just kept going with the arms and then all of a sudden they're on two legs and they kind of move in herds and they move together and they communicate and they're smart and like the velociraptors they're the velociraptors of worms basically (laughs) and it was it felt very much like a jurassic park ripoff which is i did not expect that at all when i was watching it i don't know if you guys thought the same thing when you saw like we're like watching it now but i definitely got like big jurassic park vibes from this entire thing yeah i think i think it definitely it, it knows what it is and it knows what films um it knows what films will inspire people to seek it out. I think Jurassic Park is a big part of that. Yeah. But I think part of what makes it like part of it too is it has this sort of central love story that's very, you know, kind of blue collar, you know, researcher and then like mm-hmm. a blue collar guy, which is a little even though Alan Grant is very like rubbed dirt in it in the Jurassic Park movies. So 
I think that Sam Neill in that film and Fred Ward in this series kind of are, you know, different educations, sure, like different pedigrees, but sort of not too far cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's, I think that it's it's the, that general, like, non-toxic masculinity of the mm. Fred Ward character kind of gives it that same sort of vibe that he's like, yeah. he's a little bumbling, uh, but he means well. And that, that works in much the same way that the Jurassic Park movies work. So they're getting, they're definitely getting inspiration from some of the set pieces, but I think it's also like the characterizations sort of feel of a piece with the universe that they created. Yeah. And I, I noticed that a lot with Fred Ward's character where like he was very often like, stop fucking asking me what to do. I have no idea. And I feel like like in an action horror movie protagonist, they don't usually like admit verbally multiple times. They don't know what they're doing. Like he's very much like, I don't have any idea. Like I'm just kind of like flying by the seat of my pants the whole movie, mm-hmm. which I, again, I appreciate he's not just like a tough guy, but a guy who knows a little bit more than everybody else, but just owns some ostriches and like, <laughs> just... <laughs> trying to live every day and he day. knows when to call in the reinforcements like he does. You, you don't you don't see that particularly coming out of like the 80s and i'm trying to think about the 90s but mostly like coming out of the 80s where you had like the act the rise of the action hero whereas you know schwarzenegger or stallone or you know it was that kind of or jean-claude or you know that kind of thing whereas here we have kind of the antithesis of that where he's like I know just enough to like get me in trouble. I like blowing these things up. I want to make some money, but then he's willing to call in his, his backup that comes armed to the teeth, but he's not, he's not like those other characters. And I, I appreciate that, especially watching this now, even though I, I think that a lot of this is silly. I do appreciate um, that character a whole lot. And I think there's, there's one of my favorite things um, in movies and kind of something that, that makes me feel really good about films is when horror often has char- smart characters make bad decisions in order to sort of like push the premise forward. Mm-hmm. And Tremors too. one of the things I love about it is it has characters make smart decisions that lead to bad results, or at least decisions based on their experiences that they think are smart. You know, one of my favorite scenes in this film is where uh, Michael Gross is Burt Gummer. You know, he's like, oh, there's a graboid. Let me shoot him. And like just giant elephant gun, like ridiculous gun, just wastes this thing. And then the bullet keeps going and they go and they look and it keeps going. It keeps going. And he's basically blown out the engine block on a car. And, you know, his line is like, I didn't know. How how could I have known? And I think that's so that's that's what makes these this movie and the first one so cute for me. I can't speak to all of them, but so cute for me is it's like these people that have such utter confidence in what they're doing and think they know exactly how to handle the situation. And when it gets away from them, you know, their response is to basically throw their hands in the air and be like, well, and and not like, and the movie doesn't necessarily need to punish them for it. It's just sort of like, okay, like I shot it and that didn't work. So I'm a lot of ideas. That's the vibe of, of Tremors 2 in particular. Yeah. That's like, I hadn't thought about it that way. Cause I was like, this movie is very silly and it was a little bit ridiculous, but it also really, it was charming and that, and I couldn't mm-hmm. think of why it was so charming, but you just captured to me like why it was so fun to watch, even when it was like very silly at points It that captures why I think it is ultimately. It's a good. lot of, yeah, it's a lot of characters that are like, watch this and then like roll a natural one basically is, <laughs> is how that plays out. That, yes. that's, that is the entire film. That is the entire film. That is in the entire film. That is but perfect. I, I'm glad you mentioned Bert because Bert is my favorite character in this whole movie. He is incredible. And I'm so sad. So this and that made me think about how I'm sad that Reba wasn't in this movie and mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon wasn't in this movie. I felt a I felt a little cheated, I will say. I was like I love like I love Fred Ward. He's great, but I just 
the new sidekick to me was not cutting it. I actually okay, so I'd never seen Tremors too. Like I am very new to Tremors. I saw the first. I saw Tremor, the original Tremors, like a couple months ago. So I am very new to this whole series, and this is the first time I've ever seen it. So that's where I'm coming from with this. But Terry, what was your experience with Tremors too? I, you know, I, w- I was trying to think about my reaction to this movie when it first came out, because I would have been, it came out in 96, so I would have been 15, and I remember being really excited for it, uh, because I love Tremors. Tremors was one of my favorite movies um, as a kid, because it, like, it it had that kind of, it was a monster movie, it was funny, it was kind of scary, there were scene, there were moments in there that stuck out in my young brain of, like, this is really kind of creepy, and this is really kind of cool, and so I was really excited for this one. And I remember being really disappointed that Kevin Bacon and Reba weren't in it um, because they were kind of that core uh, quad quad of people were like my favorites. I loved mm-hmm. those four people together. I remember being completely surprised by the bipedal creatures because and I was wondering if this was something that I had misremembered. But I went back and I looked up some trailers from that time. And they cut around the bipedal reveals. And so it was basically like they're talking, oh, they've, they're evolving or something like that. But it was never anything like, this is what you get. There was none of this like, we're now on the ground and we're now having these monsters that are going to chase after you um, on, on ground. So like, I remember being surprised by that. And um, yes, the new sidekick, uh, Grady, isn't very good. But I'll tell you that 15-year-old Terry had a crush because he was like the prototypical 90s kind of fuck boy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm sure he'd appreciate being described that way (laughs) well i think so maybe this is just me having come to it by you know i watched tremors too before i watched tremors you know yes like michael gross is the reason the franchise persists and Mm -hmm. kevin bacon is the reason the franchise started but I, I, for me, it was always like Fred Ward is is the most interesting character in in the movies. The most interesting character in the first film, and he gets to be the lead in the second film. And I don't know, like there's just there's something about that kind of like Tommy Lee Jones, if he had a sense of humor, kind of energy mm, that he like mm-hmm. brings to the role that is that is so much fun. Like he is clearly because we've all seen movies with him in it over his career. Like he's just he's the consummate B movie star. He's clearly talented enough to do better work um but he never seems to be in all the things that i've seen him in he never seems to be somebody that believes that he's like you never get a whiff of like he's acting down or he's working below him he's just like he's always just right for the movies that he's in and the roles that he's in whether it's an a-list celebrity driven kind of thing or like some direct-to-video kind of movie and i you know for for me and probably I could probably trace my fascination with like, you know, B actors that have long careers over traditional like leading men. Fred Ward is like, he's the fucking coolest. He's the coolest. And mm-hmm. he transitions between action and comedy in this movie about as good, if not better than anybody else. Like if there is a, if, if you could distill down everything about a nineties leading man that is likable and makes you want to root for them, it would all look a lot like Fred Ward in this film, I think, because he's got the quips, he's got the action sequences, you know, he's got the the moments of chaos and the, you know, even Arnold Schwarzenegger lost a lot of fights. That was part of the fun of somebody who was gifted in comedy and otherwise. But I, that 
to me that there couldn't have because I, I never saw the first Tremors. This was never disappointing. It was like watching Tremors one was like, oh look, like there's a backstory for my favorite character, the star of the Tremors franchise, Fred Ward. <laughs> he also he has back? a really nice set of hair. He does. Yes, His he does. hair is incredible. Is he? Is His stubble back? is perfect. It, but like there is the part at the very end, like after the explosion, where his hair is blown in such a way that it very much looks like a wig, in a very funny way, that it shattered his hair, like expectations of his hair for me. But did he come back in any of the other Tremors movies, or was this his last one? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm gonna assume not. His last one. Okay. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, I think I, this was his last one. Okay. I think that quickly after Tremors 2, they definitely, definitely did not have the budget to bring back Fred Ward anymore. Well, the the fact that this movie got made is kind of a, a miracle in and of itself. Because when they, when they originally wanted to shoot it, they had a script. Uh, the studio really liked it. They wanted a budget of $17 million, which is like, I think it was like $6 million more than the original. They were going to film in Australia. And they were going to have Reba and Kevin Bacon's characters back. Well, Reba went on a big, massive tour and said she can't do it. Um, Kevin Bacon decided to do Apollo 13. Ah, well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then the first movie underperformed. And so they slashed the budget down to being $4 million. A lot of the tech people decided to come on and cut their, their fees uh, the director at one point offered to do, direct it for free. Um, so, like, the fact that this got made at all is a is a minor miracle. But how, you know, to its credit, too, Tremors 2 folded that into its own narrative, right? Like, mm-hmm. the film is about Fred Ward's character kind of, like, f- being frustrated in the distance because Kevin Bacon's character made it big. Like they both had mm-hmm. this traumatic life-changing experience in the first film and Kevin Bacon's character went on the fame and glory and Fred Ward invested all of it in an emu ranch and lost <laughs> or video games and lost his money. Right. So like the, the fantastic premise of this is the movie within a movie is the idea that like, yeah, like he's, he had an opportunity to make it big. He fucked up, he failed. And so this is his second shot at redemption and the kind of the, the bookend of like him finding success on his own terms and kind of getting a little bit rich in the process because of all the graboids they've killed, like that adds an extra level of fun. If they had basically just been, oh, it's Fred Ward again and there's more of the same, that would have been probably fine. But the idea that they folded into the narrative of the film, the idea that I'm sure a lot of fans were thinking of in the times like, hey, where's Kevin Bacon? And like Fred Ward's character's life is basically, hey, where's Kevin Bacon? Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a neat bit of metatextuality that I think really works in the film's favor and kind of anchors it in this this comedic narrative of somebody who didn't grow to resent his standings, but has reason to be frustrated and have a personal vendetta against these things. Yeah, that's that's very true uh yeah you have gone like i just i have no like you have just gone so much deeper into this movie than i ever would have in my entire life and like i had now have a newfound appreciation for this movie this movie follows me like (laughs) this it and i are joined at the hip forever Like, I am not a Tremors fan. I am a Tremors 2 Aftershocks fan. That is what I was saying. Wow. Like, I'm not a, I don't care about the franchise. I haven't watched anything. I think I watched the Western at one point. But, like, it is this movie and this movie in particular for some reason that just sings to me in a way that even the original Tremors doesn't. Huh. Huh. 
Now, I have to say that the the effects in this movie are really actually really good. Yeah, um, particularly considering that it's a third of the budget of the original. Right. And I'm sure that some of that budget is probably the the cast of that original. But like, you got. I mean, you have fantastic uh, special effects people: Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis, who would go on to do Starship Troopers, which you can kind of mm. see the designs oh, a little yeah. bit between these two, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Death Becomes Her, It, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Godzilla vs. Kong. Wow. The car that's driving by. <laughs> and then you also have Peter Chesney, who did No Country for Old Men, Men in Black, Waterworld, Mother. So, like, you have people with a huge pedigree that that reduced their budget a whole lot, or some of them kind of, I think, might have worked almost for free to get this movie made. And the, the special effects look fantastic even to today i love the Mm. creature design of the little bipedal shriekers and i think part of the part of the reason why is like there was there was a few years there in the late 90s mid to late 90s i think after jurassic park came out where the golden approach was still this blend of practical and cgi right like even Mm -hmm. if you could do digital effects for your creatures you were still going to anchor it by having like most of the monster and then animating their legs or something people were really you know, it wasn't until Lucas and the Star Wars films that I think people were like, oh, why don't we do all of this as digital and see if it can work? So really that that window between Phantom Menace and Jurassic Park, I think, is a great period for filmmakers approaching kind of that hybrid approach of like some of it will be practical, some of it will be digital. And the result, all of that stuff, like Starship Troopers for sure, but Tremors 2 Aftershocks and other films of that ilk, they've all aged pretty well because they kind of had one foot in both camps. Whereas it's the stuff of the early 2000s where they went fully digital and didn't have any kind of practical modeling or effects that went with it that tended to age a little bit poorly as a result. So I have a real fondness for the late 90s kind of creature stuff because mm-hmm. it's all it's all kind of that hybrid approach that we eventually would come back to. And now, you know, like the new Jurassic World movies are like, oh, yeah, we have models and like so much of this is practical. It's like, yeah, well, great. I'm glad you guys came back to where you were, <laughs> but where you were was perfect. Why did you get away uh-huh. from this to begin with? I know. It, I, I as you're talking, I was thinking back. Yeah, there are a lot of really great kind of creature features in the in the '90s that did that. I'm thinking like you know both like uh, Deep Rising and Relic mm-hmm. and or The Relic, I think, and just all of these movies that kind of did a, a combination of the the CG and the the digital kind of effects as well as the practical. And I'm sad that we got away from that, and I'm I'm hopeful that with like like you said with Jurassic World, that we might be starting to circle back into that more practical effects or models because they just, there's something missing about having a tangible creature there. I just, well, I really think there the is. Especially the scene where, he, where Earl like, reaches out to touch the, the the shrieker that's wrapped up in the back of the truck and he's drooling and he touches it and it jumps. Like, you can't, mm-hmm. that feels, it feels real because it, it's right there. The model is right there. And I feel like that's not as possible or it doesn't feel as authentic, I guess, with the CG, with CGI or completely digital animation. Yeah, it's, I I mean, as, as, again, as silly as this movie is, I will take some of the creature work in this movie above and beyond even like the AAA blockbuster titles of the decade, right? Like yeah. this movie, this movie is dirty and kind of gritty and it's very desert-y. It's all shot in the desert, um, but it uses practical effects and it feels more cohesive, like creatures, people, and location feels more cohesive than a lot of movies do. And I think there's never any, you know, there's never any questions of soundstage or CGI kind of stuff. Like it's all clearly like they shot as much of this on location as they could. Mm -hmm. And it just, it has a very like lived in and earthy feel to it, which of course works because they're trying to tell stories about 
lived-in and earthy characters surviving against lived-in and earthy monsters. So it's just like there there is a there's a visual and aesthetic consistency that works in its favor, and yeah, like it's a great movie. I don't I, I don't know what more you guys want me to say. Everyone <laughs> should go watch Tremors Two Aftershocks. No, but like I always, you know, it's direct to video, and so in every I feel like the phrase direct to video always kind of sets your expectations low. I feel especially like in the nineties, exactly mm-hmm. like direct to video. Like oh, this is going to be terrible, but the, again. Just, Ramp- like emphasizing again the creature work in this is not a direct to video vibe like it is very it is like top notch horror like horror movie effects with these creatures because like and again that's probably where all the budget went but they look amazing like they do they look like little rotisserie chickens on mm-hmm. legs but they have so many cool details like the um the sensor that pops up on top of their head and you kind of see their brain and it looks like they're like they're heat seeking and the really cool like heat seeking or like the um not heat seeking what's the word i'm looking for like heat vision when they you go like the the creature's point of view and you see the way they see Mm -hmm. the world Mm -hmm. like they do some really really cool things with how they construct the creatures that i want to see in more movies now (laughs) like i want to see the that kind of construction of a creature and And to their credit they turn that into some pretty good physical gags too like the heat vision of the creatures like with the broomstick and stuff like it's yeah it, it it it's funny like it uses the the good combination of like creature feature stuff and kind of humor. Yeah. I actually really like the humor in this movie. It's a little bit more slapsticky than the original one, mm-hmm. but uh some of the lines in it I think work really well. And particularly I love the moment where it's they're out at night. I believe it's um uh Earl and Grady and it's the moon is in the background and they hear a coyote howl and He's like, is that a coyote? Man, he better be quiet. And then it yelps as a graboid eats it. And it's just, it's such a little kind of small, but pay up, pay off and like set up and pay off joke that just like really made me, made me giggle watching it. And there's a lot of of lines like that. Yeah. One of my favorite movie lines of all time is I was denied critical Critical. need to know information. I am completely out of ammo. That's never happened to me before. Yes. He is incredible. Bert is an incredible character, and while everyone in this movie is trying their best, the acting is okay, but his performance is top-notch. I love him. His energy is just so good and kind of chaotic, and I also love that he films himself while he's driving, and I mm-hmm. want a, found fo- a Tremors found footage movie that features Bert and his exploits as someone who fights Graboids. Um, this is, these are my needs. <laughs> I'm here. If only all doomsday preppers, like you know, uh, off the grid gun owners, were were like Bert, the world would be a better place. The world would be a better place. Would be a better place. But I also like how the humor is sometimes centered on the character. Like the the line that I I particularly wrote down is when he finally admits that Heather has left him and is not coming back, and she's like, "Told me to send her the HK ninety (laughs) one," and it's like it's such a funny little line, and I don't even know what an HK ninety one is, but like you can tell. That that is just, oh, that is the final moment of their relationship, and it, it ties back to that original one where they're unloading all of the their guns into the, the into the graboids, and it just it informs the character, but it's also quite humorous. And it's it, it goes back to to that the happy accents, right? Like having Bert broken up with makes him so much more interesting as a character than if they'd gotten Reba back. So True. they just like all of these things that that should have derailed it and probably commercially did derail it. I think actually make for a stronger story. Yeah. Oh, that's, so, uh, that's fair. Speaking of funny moments, though, I think my favorite, the one that really caught me off guard was when 
um helen is that her name i completely forgot her name that's terrible of me the woman the love interest reveals that she was the playmate of october 1974 and that is like kate kate riley played by helen yeah that moment (laughs) incredible i was like wait that's a callback from the beginning that's incredible like what an incredibly ridiculous callback in the last like two minutes of this movie with a lo- like with a, a love plot that really is unnecessary but that that joke at the end makes it all worth it because it's so funny like i don't know yeah. i was I, i'm a huge fan of that and i'm a huge fan of the one that they do where um each of them are caught checking out the other one's ass. Yes. Which is such a like, you know, you've seen it a million ways, right? Like the guy that's like, ooh, checking out a girl. But the fact that they like immediately flip that and she's like looking at him and he has a nice ass in those jeans. I'm not going to lie. It looks so good. So it's just like, it's it's cute. It's 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 cute. They know what they're doing. That that was a moment that like as adult, I completely miss as a kid, but as adult, I mean, I'm like, oh, I love that they're inverting this expectation of, yeah, of course he's going to look at her ass, but then she's checking him out. I love, I love that inversion there. I, I just I don't think that they really have too much chemistry in this. Well, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe not. But you know <laughs> Matt, you're like, I, I don't, don't think she's utilized as, as well. It's it's you know I think I think they work together in the comedic scenes and they're only asked to be romantical at the very end. So I think yeah, that that works enough for me. But you're right, I don't think like this is not the great American love story, Tremors two. <laughs> No, although I will say that watching this now, because like I, w- when we talked, um, we talked, I mean, we've talked about the first one recently um, on this podcast. And the thing that really like as an adult, I was like honing in on is a sort of like homoeroticism between uh, Earl and Val at that that is unfortunately oh, sure. missing here. But like I did like that that almost at one point seemed like they were trying to make sort of a, a family aspect of this where you have Earl and you have Kate and then you have the goofy son, Grady, because he is just this like he's a kid he's a kid at heart you know he wants to open up a a theme park he wants to like he's so excited to meet his his number he's just he's earl's number one fan he's so excited to meet his you know this role model in his life and it's just they have this sort of like almost found family aspect that's unfortunately not explored and a whole lot but it was particularly in the beginning i was like oh they're kind of making this little family unit Mm -hmm. with crazy uncle bert yeah, and it, it works. It, and it's another, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about what he, that character brought to the, the movie, which is the idea of like the, um, or contributed to the idea of like the RVs with the dynamite, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it also made me think of the fact that like, you know, the big bad monster that almost killed everybody in the first film, they kill like 20 of them in the beginning kill of the movie. so many. They kill so many of them. So yes. it's just so much of this film is, is, as you said, kind of like set up in direct opposition to the first movie and the idea of like, you know, the family that you're stuck with in the first film, this is the family that you kind of inherit. And you're, you know, the entire first movie is about the fact like these characters that are stuck in this town and want to get out and literally can't get out. It's almost like a Groundhog Day-esque experience where every time they almost get out of the town, something turns them around and pulls them back. And in this one, you have somebody who's consciously kind of building the family around him. You know, there's, there's like, there's such good companion pieces and they're such good companion pieces in a way that, you know, the idea that, the people that create these sorts of movies have to be fans of the franchise is a huge deal, right? Like there's the new star Wars thing. They dared hire somebody who'd a writer for the new star Wars series that had never seen star Wars. And people are like, Oh my God, how can they do this? 
and that you know you don't need to be a fan of the franchise in order to create but i think there's a real love and respect for the first movie in this movie yeah. that pays off in a hundred different ways and i think that that's you know it, it, this had every reason to be a cash grab we've all seen yeah. direct-to-video sequels that just like are basically like let's do the first thing with different faces like and and it'll be good enough for people to spend their money but this this feels as much like a love letter to the first movie and the themes and the concepts and the characterizations that they were playing with as it does anything else and it's it feels like a rare thing then and now to find a new filmmaker a new creative team who comes in and works with a third of the budget and half the original cast and is able to create something that that feels like it loves the first movie as much as we do rather than it's just sort of like the watered down version of the first yeah, I, you know, I was thinking about that in particular as I was doing a little bit of research on on that production history because I was like, when I was watching this before I knew any of that, I was thinking, man, this feels like it was made with a lot of heart, and it's something that I wasn't expecting. I mean, cause I like I said, I barely remember the movie when I was a kid. I remember watching. I remember the surprise of the the biped, the bipedal creatures. I remember the giant worm that was hollowed out. Like these are the things that I, I that I remembered, and so I was like. I, is this movie a cash in or, you know, a cash grab? And I think probably the, 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 um, the film company probably thought of it as such, like, let's try to create as much as we can from this $4 million budget. But the fact that all of these people gave up some of their funds to make this movie, you can really feel the heart that is on display in that. And that is something that even though I personally do not think this is as good as the first tremors, you can absolutely see here for sure. Just shaking my head. I know you gotta, gotta throw shade there at the end. You, know, you had sorry. me into the last sentence. <laughs> I just gotta, I just gotta do that a little bit. That's fair. I hear you. Now I, I gotta also say that it movies in the nineties had me convinced that everyone knew how to hotwire. <laughs> oh yeah. Like Grady's just out here, like just hotwiring this, this car. And I'm, and I was thinking back about like, man, why don't I know how to hotwire a car? I don't even know how to change my fucking windshield wipers, man. They've been streaking for like a year now. And I'm just like, well, I guess this is my car now. It's it's, (laughs) you just unclip something and clip something else in. It's like it takes 10 seconds of work. I've watched the YouTube videos, but it's just never going to happen. No, that's when you just like go, I'm going to wait until the next oil change and ask them to change it. (laughs) I'm just going to buy a new car. I'm just going to trade this in. I trade in cars every time my windshield wipers get dirty because I don't know how to do anything else. But it seems so easy, hotwiring your car. Well, also replacing your windshield wipers, like that seems easy, but it also seems as easy as hotwiring a car. It's like you just, just put two wires together and you're good, right? Like that's all you gotta do to hotwire a yeah. car. Take two seconds. I always thought yeah, about that. I, wish... I was always like, I would think that. I was like, well, if I you know can't find the keys, I can just hotwire it. Not realizing that when you hotwire a car, like you can't like restart it. Like it's not. It's like a single use at, like, at that point. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, oh it's is just it? like a backup plan. Oh, I didn't I'm know that sure either. It's just I not think... like a, a constant thing. You just... It's a one and I done. I think so. Oh. Hold on. Listeners, sit us up. How do you hotwire a car? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> the police are listening. We're joking. I'm not. Oh, Come okay. for me, Popo. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how to hot. Well, I just established I don't know how to hotwire a car, so I'm not going to go on a crime spree. I mean, you might. This could be the impetus for starting one. Somebody's stealing all the windshield wipers in town. Who could it be? <laughs> Monogal. Um, I also, I did like the fact that there is an arcade game of the Tremors in this movie when I went looking and they've never made a Tremors video game. There's one that was supposed to be made in 2000 that got canceled, but they've never made a Tremors video game. And considering the number of video games that were made out of horror movies in like the 80s and the 90s, that's surprising to me. That is surprising. 
Yeah, you feel like at least somewhere along the lines, somebody would have made like a fun 8-bit version of it, right? Yeah. Like a platformer or something, side-scroller that would be like jumping over Graboids, which is, of course, the game that, that's in the movie. But it is... This feels like the sort of thing where, like, weirdly, somebody could get the license to it and create, like, a video game, and it would be, like, among the best games of the year, right? Hell Just, yeah. Like, like, out of left field, like, um, Pitch Black Escape from Butcher Bay kind of like, wow, how did they manage to, like, how did they manage to take this and then turn it into something that's, like, rich and fun and tongue-in-cheek but compelling in the same way? I Now I have a new life goal. I need to not, – not the franchise. Again, I don't care about the franchise. I need to <laughs> – Get the license to Tremors Two Aftershocks and turn that into a movie or a video game. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do backstories. It's all gonna be an origin story, and it's gonna have like Mass Effect style. Everybody's gonna kiss. I'm really into this idea. <laughs> Everyone's gonna kiss. Yay! <laughs> um, on that beautiful magical note, do we want to wrap up and give this movie a rating out of five? Yes. Um. Okay, Terry. Oh wait. We didn't even talk about the Precambrian part, though. Oh. They're Precambrian life forms. We got it. <laughs> I'm very good. I'm, clean, I'm cleaning you up here. Back in a thousand. <laughs> the oh, earliest no, okay. before, before we do get to that, the let, let, I, do, I actually i am glad that, that this came up because I did want to talk about the fact that... So this movie also does kind of uh, increase the sort of legacy of the the graboids by answering a question that I had as a kid of were these aliens or where did they come from and while we still don't quite 100% know it does establish that these are the oldest life forms on the planet this and- is they're dinosaurs they're living dinosaurs it's great so technically this they predate Jurassic Park <laughs> they do yeah. take after. that T-Rex I, they pro- and they probably make a joke about that at some point in the franchise in one oh, of the I'm fifth sure. or sixth movies that I haven't seen. Once there's ass blasters in, involved and in, correct. And well, so I, I'm got, I, this is one small thing that I was laughing about until the, and then they address it very much like, closer to the end. But it's like, OK, so we have a bunch of these things and we just want to blow all of them up. <laughs> we don't want to see what kind of like scientific maybe things to learn from them. No just blow them up and i mean that's humanity right true and i was like but no, don't but understand i guess it, understand what it, made me laugh was it. no one was saying anything until the very end when kate was like no don't kill all of them and they all looked at her like she was crazy and i was like well and then she kind of backs off about yeah it. she's like oh just kidding you know well it's nice not every not every creature feature needs its paul riser right sometimes you just blow them <laughs> all up yeah i guess you're right true. fine <laughs> Um, sorry so, okay. <laughs> i'm not gonna let you talk shit about tremors 2 aftershocks on the matt monogle tremors 2 aftershock show <laughs> don't worry director ss wilson who only ever made one other movie i've got your back oh did he right, only ever make one right more? directed movie, only certified directed forgotten yeah. and then get him on the podcast and then it's just Fair you enough. and him and donato donato can just sit there and stare it's the second half of the episode to be like, are we going to talk about the movie that I brought? And I'm like, no, yeah. we're not. It was all pretense. Oh, he came back to Tremors 4. Mm-hmm. Two directed. The only two movies he's directed. Oh, oh sweet. Really, he wrote short, really short, looked... short Circuit and Batteries Not Included, though. Oh. Huh. And Wild Wild West. Oh. Well, the less we say about that, the better. <laughs> That is my favorite movie of all time, and I'll hear no slander. No, I've actually never seen it. Well, say, uh, when we're you have are to scarred have... by life and bringing yourself on a podcast guest for that. I was say, I think we have to talk about our friendship if Wild Wild West is your favorite 
that's the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> um, Terry, how many pre-Cambrian lifeforms out of five do you give tro- trolls? T- I just called it trolls too. <laughs> Ouch. Oh. Ouch. That is a slam. Ooh, wow, that hurt. That I'm glad hurt we did that at the very end of the episode. I think we just That's lost fine. Monocle. Well, no, it's fine. I made it. I made it an hour and 15 minutes, so we're good. Just uh, going to take, take off my headset and roll away from the table like a guest <laughs> on Fox News. Um, I give it one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I what was going to say? See. Is one good? What is your skill? You guys didn't one tell me this five. in the fucking pre-show. <laughs> Out of five. It's out of five. One is good, five is bad. That's a that's <laughs> counterintuitive. We're really trying to switch it up and just make things a little quirky. No, you know, okay, going into this, I was honestly probably going to give it two and a half. But after this conversation, I definitely I can definitely see what they were trying to do with a lot of it. And I as I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Monagle. It's just not going to be as good of a movie as Tremors is for me because Tremors holds a soft spot in my heart, kind of like I'm, I think this movie does for you. But I will say that I'm going to give this one, and it's still going to be low for you, I know, three and a half Precambrian life forms because it, it it made me laugh a whole lot. The creature effects are really good, and um, yeah, I like Bert a whole lot. So I'm going to say three and a half. What about you, Mary Beth? I have no allegiance to this franchise whatsoever, so <laughs> I'm going to give it three pre-Cambrian lifeforms. That has gone up a full lifeform from when I first came into this episode. So I take that as a win, Monocle. Please take that as a win. Um, I do. It's fun. It's goofy. It's kind of stupid, but like a really good time, and the creatures are great. And it made me laugh at the very It made me laugh throughout. So I had a great time with it overall. I mean, Monogol, I know your answer, but <laughs> let me let me end with a story then, if if not an answer. Um, five out of five, and I will say really quickly that it is rare for you to find movies that you loved as a kid. I mean, didn't love as a kid. We just established that, but as, you know, movies that were influential when you were a kid that you come back to and you still enjoy as much. So, Tremors Two is always going to hold a special place in my heart because I hate a lot of the stuff I used to love. But I want to end with a story on my five or five. So. A few years ago, my wife and I had just moved to Austin, Texas, and there's a friend, um, Ed Travis, who I think everybody here knows or interacts with on on social media. He runs an outdoor theater called um, Community First Village or Community First Cinema. And I paid the not too expensive rental fee to actually rent the outdoor space because it was my birthday and I wanted to go big. And so I rented the little outdoor movie theater that he had. And then I invited all of my friends and family and I told them that I was going to show them the movie that had scared me the most as a kid, the movie that had really fucked me up the most out of any movie that I'd ever seen, like something that I could not shake for years, the thing that <laughs> broke me as a human being. And I had a very, very wary group of people that showed up on that movie night and were like people that are not horror movie fans that were like, okay, so you're going to show us something really, really gross, right? And I was like, I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to put it on. And I can tell you, like, the wave of relief and, like, (laughs) laughter that went through the audience when the movie started and the opening credit came up and it said Tremors 2 Aftershocks was probably the greatest thing I'll ever accomplish in my life. So I got to show this on the big screen in an outdoor movie theater to some of my nearest and dearest after hyping it up as the scariest film I'd ever seen, which is technically true, but, you know, very much a, a stretch of that word. And so both for the childhood fear and the adult revisiting with friends and family. It's got to be a five out of five. 
Hell yeah. That is amazing. That's an incredible. That is an amazing story. I'm, I, I'm so glad that you did that. That is, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, I feel like I only get to do that once in my life is really like go all out and hype up a movie and have people come in blind. Any, anytime I do that, if I ever do that again, you know, there won't be, I won't be able to surprise them with something like Tremors 2 anymore. So the element of surprise has been lost. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us to talk about Tremors 2 Aftershocks. Where can listeners find you, and what do you have coming up on your site that you'd like to share? Uh, well, thank you guys for having me. I'm a big fan of your show, so it's very, very, very cool to be invited to come on and guest, um, especially because I don't have a movie coming out. So I feel like, <laughs> why are you guys even talking to me if, I don't, if I'm not a filmmaker? You have such cool guests, is what I'm saying. Um, I, you can find my writing on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Um, I tend to write for places like Austin Chronicle and Slash Film and Film School Rejects and a couple others. Um, most importantly, though, continue to check out CertifiedForgotten.com. We have a couple of pieces coming out that I'm pretty excited about. We Somebody pitched and wrote a piece on the American remake of Dark Water, uh, which is a film that I liked quite a bit back in the yeah. day with Jennifer Connelly. And I think that's going to go up in the next couple of days on the site. So, yeah, if you like reading about movies that you probably haven't seen and probably should visit certifiedforgotten.com and all credit goes to our incredible talented roster of writers um, who keep pitching us these really neat movie ideas we love them for it yeah hell yeah uh listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you what is your experience with tremors 2 aftershocks you can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on twitter i'm at mb mcgandrews and i'm at gaily dreadful and of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please, please go rate, review, and subscribe. Please. And tag me. If you're going to talk about this movie on Twitter, you got yes. to tag me. You got to tag me. At me. At me, you cowards. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time, don't let the Trevors get you. And yes, I'm calling him Tremors. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
ACAST.com. <laughs>